This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, December the 8th, 2021, and you're listening to The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host, a Fox News contributor and political editor at townhall.com, coming to you live from the Tony Snow studio in Washington, D.C. Thrilled, delighted, honored that you are here with me every day, every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, plus bonus Benson on the weekends on our podcast, all available at GuyBensonShow.com. That podcast on demand each and every day. Line up, not a huge one. We've got Mara Elias in this hour. We've got Carol Markowitz in our final hour and just a lot to get to here otherwise. So I hope that you're ready for a big show. Fox News alert as we begin today's program. Let's look at stats on COVID as we do at the top of each show. 49.3 million cumulative cases in the United States of COVID. And on the Omicron variant, we've got some heartening and I would say encouraging news that we will share with you a bit later on in the show when it comes to severity and virulence, just uh, more data that seems to be backing up the initial indications. So stay tuned for that. The death toll in the United States from COVID, 790,082 Americans have died with or of COVID over the last 20 months or so. The Dow is in the green barely right now. It's up by 13 points, currently trading at 35,732. We open the show today on schools, on teachers' unions, on COVID, on parents, and on arrogance, and how all of that might play into the 2022 midterm elections. And on that front, the upcoming elections next year, 11 months away-ish, I will be breaking down the results of a new Wall Street Journal poll out today later on in the show. There are some eye-opening data points in that poll that I am quite eager to bring to your attention and talk about. That's coming up a bit later on. I start, however, in Los Angeles, California. I saw this clip from a local news outlet making the rounds, and I'll confess to you my first thought was caution. My first thought was skepticism. It seems too bad to check. I watched the video. It's from KNBC, the NBC affiliate out in L.A. And there's an allegation that a school in Los Angeles, in fact, the Barack Obama Global Preparation Academy, had done something to me unthinkable. That they had been administering covid vaccines to children, to minors at the school 
without even the knowledge of their parents, let alone the consent of their parents. And as I watched the clip and I read the story from the NBC website, my skepticism did not completely melt away, but was sort of allayed to a large extent by the response of the school district when they were called out on this and asked for comment. So together, let's listen to this news report. This is Los Angeles, California. They're featuring one mother and her story. Breathtaking, breathtaking stuff, an unbelievable violation of parental rights, it would appear, in Southern California. Listen to Cut 13. Parents in the L.A. Unified School District are accusing schools of giving their kids the vaccine without their consent. Maribel Duarte says that her 13-year-old son, a student at the Barack Obama Global Prep Academy in South L.A., brought home this vaccine card after getting the shot at school. And she says that he said yes when somebody offered the vaccine in exchange for some pizza. It hurted to know that... He got a shot without my permission, without me even knowing or signing any papers for him to get the shot. LAUSD says student matters are confidential and wouldn't comment specifically, but did say it's a program and it's meant to ensure several steps are in place for vaccinated students to get prizes. All students 12 and above in the district have to be vaccinated by January 10th or they could be forced back into virtual online learning. There is a lot to unpack from what we just heard there. So the featured mother is a woman called Maribel Duarte. She's got a son who's 13. He shows up home from school with a vax card. She's like, well, where did you get that? Oh, at school. He was given the vaccine at the school without her knowledge, without her permission, the parent here. And the actual written story at the website is worse than what you just heard. Let me read from it. Duarte says her son said yes when someone offered the vaccine shot in exchange for pizza. Quote, the lady that gave him the shot and signed the paper told my son, please don't say anything. I don't want to get in trouble. So based on this allegation. You have a 13-year-old kid at school. Someone bribes him with pizza to get a shot of the vaccine from COVID or for COVID without his parents knowing. So they give him the pizza and they give him the shot and then they tell him, don't tell anyone. Right? Clearly, don't tell your parents. I don't want to get in trouble is what the woman who administered this shot said. Now, I would be astounded if there's not a lawsuit here because it does not seem like this is the only person or family that has been through this now in this district. I cannot imagine how it could be legal for a school to be injecting fluids into children while on school property during school hours without the explicit consent of parents. But there are, as we've learned in recent months and years, there are a lot of people who work in big education and their political allies in the Democratic Party who hold an extremely low opinion of parents and believe that the children of America belong to them, to the schools, to the system. 
not to their families, to their parents, to their legal guardians. I mean, if this is not grounds for a lawsuit, I don't know what is. You give the incentive. You say, don't tell your parents. This all happens without their knowledge. So again, I was just sort of, I had a wiggling antenna. This just seems a little bit off. How could this, it's just so much. How could this possibly happen? And I was open to the school district coming back and saying, this is not true. That did not happen. This is a misunderstanding. Here's what really happened. But to me, the reason why I think this is a credible allegation now, and it makes me wonder how many other kids have done this, how many parents don't even know yet, is that NBC in Los Angeles reached out to the school system and their response was not a denial at all. The school district says student matters are confidential and wouldn't comment specifically. So confidential, I guess, that it's confidential from the parents. It's a student matter. It's between the health care of a child is between the school bureaucrats and that child and the pizza delivery guy, apparently. It's too confidential for parents to know. And it's too confidential to be commented on when the media is probing for answers. But not only did they not deny it and cite confidentiality rules or whatever, they did affirmatively say, we do have a safe schools program, safe schools to safe steps. They call it an incentive program meant to ensure several steps are in place for vaccinated students to receive prizes. Prizes like pizza. This is actually pretty close to a confirmation from the school district. It is absolutely not a denial. You all know if you listen to this show, I'm a big fan of the vaccine. I got my two shots. I've had a breakthrough case, which is why I haven't gotten a booster yet. Otherwise, I would be signing up for the booster. There's some data showing that the booster can help against Omicron. I've urged friends, loved ones, my husband, my parents, I've urged them to go get their booster shot. My in-laws just had a breakthrough case. They hadn't gotten their booster shot yet. It looks like the data shows the antibodies decline after six months or so. This is for adults. I'm not a fan of mandates, especially from the government and especially from the federal government. And when it comes to kids, we know that children overwhelmingly are not negatively impacted by this virus. It's not to say they can't contract COVID. Many have. It's not to say they can't possibly be hospitalized or die. But the numbers of children in this country who have had severe cases or have died from COVID, it is a vanishingly small number, which, as I always say, does not in any way erase the experiences and the pain of the tiny microscopic handful of people and families who have dealt with that horrible tragedy. But it also is not a good basis for policymaking. And even a lot of the top doctors and healthcare experts are saying, you know, this should not be a one size fits all decision. Mandates for children on the vaccine, I think, is crazy. I think that's a crazy policy. Which reminds me, what happens if you've got a kid in this school in Los Angeles or in any of these schools in Los Angeles? God knows where this is happening. Let's say your kid has gotten COVID and recovered from it, doesn't need a shot would not be medically advisable, but the school 
administers a shot anyway? What if your kid has some sort of constellation of health afflictions or has a sort of a health circumstance where your family doctor might say, let's hold off on the vaccine for a child of a certain age? There are some foreign governments, Finland, for example, where they are not advising the vaccine be administered to any kids unless they have pre-existing conditions based on the science and the medical advice in those countries. But at this school district in Southern California, deep, deep, deep blue territory, by January 10th, every kid's going to have to be vaccinated, all of them, or else they might have to go back into disastrous, harmful distance learning, virtual learning. That is not based on science. Oh, and I guess to get their numbers as high up as possible. In some cases, they're just jabbing kids in the arm with a slice of pizza and a little warning not to tell their parents. Unbelievably unethical. What if there was some medical complication where the family doctor's like, no, this, you know, Johnny shouldn't get the shot for these reasons. Some bureaucrats like, come over here. How about pepperoni? Bang. It's crazy. It honestly is crazy. When I think that there's a very strong case that kids, broadly speaking, don't need the vaccine based on not nothing, based on nearly two years worth of data and information that we have. There are some kids who I think would be highly advised to get it. Should the parents be involved every step of the way for those decisions? You bet your ass they should. And you've got a bunch of these teachers, school bureaucrats, big education who have broadcast screaming as loudly in your face as possible for the last two years. If you're a parent, we don't care what you think. Your kids belong to us. That mentality got the Democrats rear end kicked in Virginia. Maybe these Democrats are going to lead are going to need to lose another string of painful elections until they realize that doing this, crossing parents the way that they have, is not just harmful to kids, but harmful politically. And that their alliance with the teachers unions who funnel so much money into their campaigns, money that originated with taxpayers, by the way, because we all pay taxes into public schools, maybe that alliance, which has been so strong because the incentives are there, the money is so powerful, maybe if it starts to hurt them politically, they might consider a course correction. But so far, no. There's another story in the New York Times that I want to get to after this break. Parents furious about a new trend. Schools just declaring days off because the teachers are burnt out and need mental health days. Hey, we're off next Friday. Good luck with childcare, parents. The Times has the details. I'll read you some of it as soon as we come back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. By the way, one more note out of that Los Angeles story and that mother. The L.A. school district out there, they closed their schools for more than a year. Their teachers union called for the defunding of the police as a precondition for schools reopening. They were flirting with a resolution condemning Israel. This is what they were dealing with while the schools were closed to kids who were deeply harmed by a lack of in-person learning. And now they've got this vaccine mandate for children that's not even rooted in science. The mother in this story that I just talked about, who found out that her kid had been vaccinated without her permission or knowledge at school, bribed by pizza and told not to tell her. So the person who gave the vaccine wouldn't get in trouble. That woman, in case you're curious, is not some anti-vaxxer. She's vaccinated. She herself is vaccinated. She just knows that her son is asthmatic and has a few other issues and wanted to make the decision based on her kid's interest and her family's interest. And I guess some folks at the school decided that was not up to her. It was up to them. This is unreal. Meanwhile, you've got this New York Times story that I teased before the break. Headline, schools are closing classrooms on Fridays. Parents are furious. We've mentioned this before. The Wall Street Journal reported on it. NPR reported on it. The New York Times now picking it up as well. A growing trend across the country. More and more school districts are just shutting schools at random, citing all sorts of different reasons, COVID or cleaning classrooms or mental health days or teacher burnout. They've got all sorts of excuses. And the Times story starts with a woman named Caitlin Reynolds, a single mom a working mom in Michigan. And before Thanksgiving, she just got a warning on Wednesday, the 17th of November, Detroit Public Schools, by the way, their superintendent was just bragging about CRT being all over their curriculum. There was audio of him saying that. Detroit Public Schools said they were going to close their classrooms every Friday in December, just virtual school only as a matter of course in December, every Friday. Also, oh, by the way, we're closing school the entire week of Thanksgiving. Last-minute decision. And it quotes this mother saying, wait, you need to take the kids back out again? How's that not going to be harmful to the students? She's also scrambling to figure out what to do in terms of child care. She works. There's tons of quotes in this story in The Times from parents who are like, what do I do? My mother-in-law can only do this so often. I've been calling out sick from work. It reflects poorly on me at work. And a lot of this with short notice is being done apparently because teachers are burned out and need a boost of morale and need some. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. 
His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Mental health days, teachers get a lot of time off compared to most American workers. And just the piece de resistance in this New York Times story, a quote from Randy Weingarten blaming parents and controversies like mask mandates and critical race theory. Oh, it's your it's your fault again, parents. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you along. Thanks for being on board. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. We are joined now by Mara Lyason, national political correspondent at NPR and a Fox News contributor. She and I were on the panel with Brett Bayer and Special Report yesterday together. And Mara, it's great to talk to you again. Great to be with you. So I wanted to start with a question that you asked just the other day at the White House press briefing, and it made a little bit of news because the press secretary, Jen Psaki, responded in a way that kind of uh, turned a lot of people off, including many scientists and doctors. You asked a question about testing, right, getting COVID tests into the hands of Americans, and Psaki was – I would say maybe a bit snippy and dismissive in her response. I'm not sure if that's how you would characterize it, but explain the question that you asked and were you at all surprised by the way it was answered? Well, I was a little surprised, but you know what? Press secretaries have a hard job. I think she's generally one of the best of them. And yeah, it was, it was a little strange, but what I asked was pretty simple, which is why not make more tests available for less money. Other countries have been able to do this. The UK, I think, gives them out for free. You can just walk into a pharmacy and scoop up a bunch of tests and do it at home. Germany, I think they cost a buck a piece, the equivalent. Um, So other countries have been able to test more. And one of President Biden's planks in his new winter plan to fight COVID is much more testing. So I was just asking her, why not make them more widely available and cheaper? And she said, well, should we should we send one to every person, every household? And I said, well, maybe I'm I don't know, but I'm just wondering why you haven't been able to do that. So she um, was a little defensive, but of, but yet but the day the next day she had a very long and detailed explanation of all the things that the White House is doing to make tests more available. You know, one of the things that the president said is, well, you can uh, you can buy a test and then apply for reimbursement from your insurance company. That seems kind of complicated to me. Um, yep. So, yeah, she was, yeah, a little defensive, but but on the whole, I think it's it's still a mystery why the United States of America hasn't been able to do more cheaper testing than other developed countries. Yeah, because other countries have done it, and that was the point that I think a lot of people who were defending you, a lot of doctors yeah. and others came out and said, like, what the hell is that response to a completely reasonable yeah. question? Because I know you can walk over to the CVS in my neighborhood – and if they're not out, you can buy some of the rapid tests, but they are not cheap at all. And if you're someone, you know, dealing with already inflation and putting food on the table and all that, is that something you're going to necessarily shell out for? Whereas it's it's readily available, these types of tests, 
for very low amounts of money, if not free, elsewhere. If the government's going to spend money on anything, this would be the type of thing sort of a la Operation Warp Speed that I think most Americans could very much get behind. And having a lot of readily available testing seems to me it would be like one of the obvious things you would try to do if, for example, you campaigned on crushing the virus and getting back to normal, which is exactly what Biden campaigned on and, frankly, won on. Right. Well, you know, the interesting thing also is testing is the exception that proves the rule about the politics of COVID. It's not a divisive issue. Nobody is against testing, at least that I've heard about. So it's something that I think you're right. People would welcome. There's no uh, ideological um you know, opposition to testing. And supposedly testing is one of the keys to getting the virus under control. Meanwhile, Mara, I want to read for you some quotes. This was uh, late yesterday. This started to break. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. This was on the heels of Senator Kirsten Cinema out in Arizona giving an interview saying, look, inflation is real. It is hurting my constituents. Manchin, speaking at a Wall Street Journal event, said, quote, the unknown of inflation is, quote, much greater than the need to do build back better right now. That's the Democrat spending bill. He went on saying we had people at the White House saying inflation would be transitory. We had 17 Nobel laureates saying it's not going to be a big problem. Well, 17 Nobel laureates were wrong. His bottom line was this whole thing is moving too fast. It could worsen inflation. It may not be paid for. It has issues in uh, in terms of tax, climate, and social policy, it's gotten bigger since it passed the House. Uh, he kept going. He was talking about budget gimmicks within it that it would not be paid for and the real cost could be a lot higher. Those were some eyebrow-raising comments from Manchin, and I wonder where you think that piece of the president's agenda stands right now because Chuck Schumer has been saying for weeks their goal is to get it done by Christmas. Well, it's December 8th, and you've got at least Manchin making comments like that. I'm not really sure if uh, if this Christmas is looking all that realistic at the moment. Yeah, I mean, Joe Manchin every so often comes and talks to the press and says something along these lines, that he's not ready to vote for it, that he thinks we should wait, he's worried about inflation. I think of all the things that Joe Manchin has mentioned as potential problems with the Build Back Better bill, inflation is actually the least credible because this isn't a stimulus package. It's going to be money spent over a very long time. However, the fact that some of it might not be paid for, uh, there might be budget gimmicks in it, it might be just too much um, of of uh, kind of a social safety net for Joe Manchin. There are many, many reasons he can be against it. I think inflation, which is a real problem, uh, there's no real evidence that the Build Back Better bill itself would would fuel inflation. Now, I tell you what a lot of people do think fueled inflation, including Larry Summers, was the COVID relief bill, because that was stimulus. That was a tremendous amount of money injected into the economy ASAP. But I think the bottom line politically is Joe Manchin isn't ready to vote for this. And the only thing that's going to pass the Senate is something that Joe Manchin is willing to vote for. And it's as simple as that. On foreign policy, last night, Mara, you and I were weighing in along with Bill Bennett, who is the third panelist, about what happened yesterday with Putin and President Biden, that meeting that they had and the readouts that we got from both countries. We had General Jack Keane on this show reacting to the briefing from the National Security Advisor and I do not hold myself out as a top expert on foreign policy or, you know, modern Russia or Putin's 
psychology or motivations or anything like that. But I think you and I were sort of on the same page when it comes to recent history dating back, let's just say, roughly to 2008 with the incursion uh, into Georgia, then the annexation six years later of Crimea in Ukraine. At each stage, you had American administrations and the EU and NATO and others saying this is bad. We condemn this. Here's some sanctions. Here's some consequences. And Putin has basically shrugged those all off. And if the goal now is to stop what appears to be an imminent invasion into a a broader part of Ukraine, which seems to be the the real fear certainly in Ukraine and elsewhere, Putin's going to have to have a much more draconian set of disincentives if it's going to actually deter him this time because the last few rounds basically he's won and i wonder how you feel that might play out i know none of us have a crystal ball but the administration is saying that this time is different why is it different right this is time is different that's kind of the question i asked jay sullivan yesterday look in 2014 you tried sanctions didn't work he annexed crimea anyway so what kind of economic measures are going to be put on putin this time that are going to be different and why do you think they'll be successful now he said that the president looked putin in the eye and said we are willing to do things we have not done before in other words new and different sanctions Other administration officials suggest some of those would include barring Russia entry into the international banking system through a system called SWIFT. It would, in effect, uh, freeze the assets of Russian oligarchs, including Putin. That would be pretty draconian. That hasn't been tried before. I don't know if the U.S. can get all of its allies on board with that. Then there is the Nord Stream gas pipeline, which... um, Germany is going ahead with Donald Trump tried to stop it and failed. And the interesting question there is that uh, Jay Sullivan described that as leverage for the West uh, and Germany. The new government of Germany is making some noises that it would be willing to forego the oil from that that gas from that pipeline um, if Putin went ahead and further invaded Ukraine. So all of these measures are basically TBD. We don't know what they're going to be. We don't know if they're going to be tough enough to dissuade him. But the other part of the story is that an invasion of Ukraine would be very costly for Putin, too. I mean, let's not it's not it won't be a piece of cake. It's not just like biting off Crimea. It would be a big, bloody conflict and it would be very unpopular in Russia. Yeah, they would incur a lot of casualties. The Ukrainians right, would fight right. very hard, perhaps with some of right. our weapons, uh, more of our yes, weapons. with some of our weapons for sure. Yeah. Yep. And so, I mean, that's that's true. I, I think the pipeline's interesting because the Trump administration's position was against it, which was, I think, a pretty hawkish position. I supported it. And then it was greenlit by the Biden people. But it looks like they're saying, well, from our perspective, that might go away. There's a new government, as you point out, in Germany. I think them saying we might reconsider. I'm not sure if that's really terrifying to Vladimir Putin. Well, we would reconsider. Right now, would no be different. Gas flowing through it. Yeah, there's no gas flowing through it. What if what if Germany says, sorry, no, thanks. But I mean, this is a, it's, it's, this is a question from Putin. Does he believe that Germany would forego the gas from that pipeline if he moved into Ukraine, further into Ukraine? Right. He has to decide whether he believes them or not. And this is this is a bigger deal than Georgia, than Crimea. This is this is a bigger deal, and it's a test for the West. And if the West fails it, and and Russia does invade with impunity, I think the world will be changed. Speaking of a test for the West. 
The Australians, the Brits, the Canadians have joined the diplomatic boycott of the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing. I still can't believe that Beijing was allowed to keep the Olympics, given everything that they've done. Uh, And I think that going a lot harder after those Olympics uh, financially, maybe with sponsors and that sort of thing, was the very least we should have done. But a, a bare minimum is the diplomatic boycott. And it's not just the United States, sort of the Anglosphere seems to be getting on board. We'll see if any other foreign nations follow suit as those Winter Olympics are now weeks away in Beijing and the surrounding areas. American athletes will be participating under the U.S. flag over there. Mara, I know we are up here on a break. We always appreciate you stopping by. I always enjoy being on TV with you as well as we were together last Me night. Me too. National political correspondent, NPR, Fox News contributor, Mara Liason. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's the Guy Benson Show, and we will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, via our colleague Matt Finn, who was just on the program yesterday, Covering the Smollett trial in Chicago, we bring you a Fox News alert. The jury is now going to make a decision on the Smollett charges. The case has been handed off to them. The trial is over. And as of eight minutes ago, the jury exited the courtroom in Chicago to begin their deliberations. We don't know how long those deliberations will last. It's conceivable we could get a verdict today or this evening. But the arguments and the cross-examinations and the testimony, that has all drawn to a close. In the closing argument from the defense attorney and the team representing Jesse Smollett, the defense told the jury today that the brothers, right, who were allegedly hired by Smollett to do the fake hate crime, They were cast as, quote, smart and sophisticated criminals, the worst kind of criminals. Well, I don't know if there's evidence that they are criminals, but if they are smart and sophisticated criminals, that would be a very dramatic departure from their client, Jussie Smollett, who would appear to be a very stupid and unsophisticated criminal based on everything that we have heard in the trial. During the closing argument, one of the defense attorneys for Smollett made this point to the uh, to the jury. Arguing about his client, what he's dumb enough to go into Obama's city and pretend there's Trump supporters running around with MAGA hats. Give me a break. I think the obvious response to that is why, yes, yes, he is exactly dumb enough to do that because it's what he did. There's evidence of it. He cut a personal check to the brothers for it. He did a dry run with the brothers on camera. He changed his story. He lied to the police. All of the evidence points to the reality that indeed, Mr. Lawyer, your client is precisely that dumb. 
Now, this is interesting. The National Black Lives Matter organization has put out a statement on all of this, on the Smollett case. So that's what we needed. BLM's take on Jussie. I'll give you one guess what the take is. Before I read it to you, I just want to underscore something that I have said before on the air and I've written before as well. When it comes to Black Lives Matter, I am proud and happy to say publicly and openly Black Lives Matter. That proposition is important. It is correct. I understand why people say, well, how about all lives matter? And of course, all lives matter. But the reason that Black Lives Matter is a powerful statement to a lot of black people is that they have felt through the years that black lives have not counted as much or mattered as much in the eyes of the law. Is that true of our entire system? Are we a systemically racist country? No. Is there some truth that we have fallen short of our values in this country over time, including more recently than we would like to admit? I think that there is some truth to that. So I am supportive of Black Lives Matter, the proposition, the idea, the statement. However, I have been consistently and vociferously opposed to Black Lives Matter, the organization. And a lot of the things that they stand for, things that they have published on their website, the destruction of the nuclear family, I mean, all sorts of crazy, radical stuff. The violence and rioting done under that banner. Some of the horrible things that have been said and chanted under that banner. I want no part of that. And I think that's an important distinction. So with that in place, the leaders of the the official leaders of the formal Black Lives Matter movement writing at their website, blacklivesmatter.com, they put out this uh, this statement earlier today. Actually, it was published, it was posted last night. And they have uh, several different people whose names are attached to this. They write in part, in our commitment to abolition, meaning abolition of the police, in our commitment to abolition, we can never believe police, especially the Chicago Police Department over Jesse Smollett, a black man who has been courageously present visible and vocal in the struggle for black freedom. They go on to talk about policing being an irredeemable institution, which is just poisonous nonsense. But their position is because they're in favor of abolishing the police, which is nuts and crazy and dangerous, they cannot believe the police and the evidence gathered by the police over Jussie Smollett because he's black and he's brave. He's black. He's not brave. He's a guilty idiot, in my opinion. And he did a lot of damage. It's the Guy Benson Show. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's our middle hour on the Guy Benson Show. We are live in the Tony Snow studio 
Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. Thanks for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday, around the clock, on demand for free at GuyBensonShow.com. Follow us on social, at GuyBensonShow, Twitter, and Instagram. Still to come, I want to tell you about something shockingly bad in the House-passed Build Back Better spending bill that you may not have heard about yet. It is really bad. We will get into some details on that upcoming, plus a big example of egregious media bias involving an accused communist who was nominated by President Biden for a key position, but that nomination has now failed. It's been withdrawn. We'll get into that. Brutal new polling numbers for Biden, by the way. We will break those down from the Wall Street Journal. Plus, Carol Markowitz will be here explaining in specific detail why she and her family have finally decided to leave New York City, the city that she has lived in and loved for decades. She finally has had enough and she's taken off. They can't do it anymore. Why? We will ask her those questions still to come on the program. Fox News alert here as we get going in the middle hour. The Dow ends the day up 35 points, closing at 35,754. I would like to address something that happened up in New York overnight at Fox News World Headquarters. We are at the D.C. Bureau, but I spent a lot of time up in New York. I'll be there again later this month. Most of our programming originates up at our headquarters. And it's always great to be up there in Midtown Manhattan. As I was leaving Midtown on my last journey just a few weeks ago, not even just days ago, it feels like, up in New York, I was leaving Fox and they were constructing the holiday decorations and the Christmas stuff outside in what they call Fox Square. And one of those items is a huge, lit up, beautiful Christmas tree with tons of lights. It's just a tree of lights, right? A tree shape made with lights. It's kind of red, white, and blue. They're calling it all American. They had the official tree lighting Oh, is it Sunday night on Fox News? There was a special. I saw Lawrence Jones was involved. Abby, I think Hornacek was there, too. So it was a whole big thing. Merry Christmas. The Fox tree is lit up. We love Christmas. We love America. Okay. And they do a nice job every year. Last night, just as I was getting ready to go to bed, because I was up pretty late, I saw on Twitter some images. The tree was on fire. And perhaps being maybe a touch naive or just a a hopeful, optimistic person, I thought, first of all, well, let's just pray no one's hurt. And my assumption was this was some sort of malfunction or one of the lights or the the circuiting caught fire and, and this is a terrible accident. As it turns out, this appears to be a case of arson. And in fact, uh, a member of our fantastic Fox security team caught a person, an individual in the act who is now in custody. Now, we don't know what the motivation was. There could just be a a mental illness problem. I don't know if this is motivated by politics or hatred of five. No idea what actually happened here. But it does appear that this was a fire set on purpose by somebody who has now been arrested. And it's not just property destruction. I know we went through all of that last summer. 
and we exposed that really pernicious lie when a lot of people were just sort of defending or dismissing violence and destruction and rioting and looting because, oh, it's just property. Oh, people have insurance. When you have lawlessness and chaos, first of all, those things aren't acceptable anyway. Just property destruction, just looting, just arson, those are felonies unto themselves, not to be dismissed or played down for political reasons, which is precisely what we saw from a hell of a lot of people last summer. A lot of them, by the way, backpedaling like crazy and trying to pretend that, oh, no, no, they're they're for law and order now because it's becoming an issue with voters. People aren't happy, right? So politics always first and foremost with a lot of these people. But when you have chaos, when you have property destruction, when you have lawlessness, people do get hurt. Sometimes people get killed. Multiple Americans were killed, murdered, or lost their lives during the riots of last summer. We just gave you this horrible update on a story a few days ago about a security guard, a former police officer, who was shot and killed trying to defend a news organization during rioting or during looting, I should say, in Oakland, California. These looters tried to steal the equipment of a news crew. This guy's job was to protect the news crew, and he was shot dead. So I have it up to about here on people who want to poo-poo or downplay mere property destruction or mere looting and theft as kind of a victimless crime. It's not. And thank God no one was hurt last night. There was no guarantee of that. When a giant thing catches fire, you have no idea what can happen. But apparently, according to what I've heard, our fact, our fast acting security team tackled the guy or, or got the guy and held him and he's now in custody. What was very disheartening to me, but not surprising, was the reaction on social media from certain people who absolutely believe that they are not just Good people, but the best people, especially compared to these Neanderthal, antediluvian, white supremacist, whatever conservatives, right? They are the best that society has to offer, and we're the dregs. That's what they believe about themselves and about us. A lot of those fantastic people are moral betters, as they would quickly inform us. Decided this was a hilarious and wonderful thing to celebrate and joke about. Oh, a Christmas tree on fire at Fox. What a wonderful thing. Merry Christmas, everyone, because we hate Fox. Classy, classy stuff. That's not the whole left. Uh, Many people that I know left of center were upset by this, would never defend it. But there is a there's a, a social media impulse, especially Twitter, I would say, where people behave about as badly as imaginable. Sometimes it's under their own names. They're just happy to raise their hand and say, attention, everyone, I'm a horrible person. And it's not just the left, right? If there was a big Christmas tree outside CNN that someone burned to the ground, I suspect you'd see some rotten, ugly stuff on the right, too. But last night, 
what happened happened, and the ugliness was on the left, in the reaction at least. And I would just say, like, if you find out that there's a Christmas tree that's been lit on fire and your reaction is delight because the Christmas tree was set up by someone that you don't like, maybe you're the bad guy. Maybe you're the one that might need to reevaluate your life, your priorities, your moral compass. Just a thought. Now, producer Christine has done some digging because she came in, she took photos, the before and the after photos. It's sad. And I will say we're already putting up a new tree, which is awesome. You might even say we're going to build back better, but for real and not for trillions of dollars. You want to burn down our Christmas tree? Here's a new Christmas tree. I hope they make it taller and brighter. But Christine was sending me the uh, the photos of just the sort of the burnt outline, these the ashes, the remains. It was it was sad. It was sad to see. I'm glad that the network leadership made it a point to say we're building a new one immediately. And then Christine was also sniffing around to try to find the person who caught the guy. Christine, what did you find out? Well, he wasn't in the building this morning because he was getting some rest. He had a a rough night. But, um, yeah, they said that he went out there and he saw the guy. He grabbed him down, waited for the police to get there. And uh, I had asked the boys down there that once I get down and out of work, if he's there and he, they could point him out to me, I'd like to go shake his hand to thank him. Because it could have been a lot worse if someone didn't realize that yeah. right away. Yeah. So we don't know which member of the security team it was, but he saw a threat and went and and neutralized it, got the guy. We don't know who this person is. We don't have uh, details on the suspect who's in custody, but that was quick thinking and a courageous thing to do. So hats off to that person. Christine might offer to buy him a drink or more likely would offer to buy herself a drink and then raise the glass in his honor, of course, and then she would consume it. For Christmas in America in Mama's Juice. All right, the Guy Benson Show continues. We've got a short break. We'll be right back after it. Don't go anywhere. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Yesterday, I went on a bit of a tirade about MSNBC and CNN and their deeply dishonest framing of a few issues, with MSNBC joining much of the professional left in this preposterous angle right now, that the media, the real problem with American media is that they are just too biased against Joe Biden, and they treated Trump better. (laughs) Just totally crazy. And CNN talking about the filibuster and Mitch McConnell without any acknowledgement of actual reality as it has played out, as it exists. You can go back and hear that on the podcast yesterday. Here's another example of how the supposedly, uh, what, pro-Trump, pro-Republican, anti-Biden media behaves. New York Times and NPR, with NPR subsidized by your tax dollars and mine, 
both framing a little political controversy, a little skirmish the same way. There's a woman called Sulla Omarova, who was a Biden nominee within the Treasury Department, I believe. She was nominated to head the office of the comptroller of the currency overseeing U.S. banks. She has withdrawn her nomination after a lot of criticism. Here's how NPR explains it in their headline. Omarova withdraws nomination to head office of comptroller of the currency, a key role overseeing U.S. banks after facing personal attacks about being born in the former Soviet Union. Well, that sounds kind of disgusting. Who was doing that? Who cares where you were born? Are you qualified? What do you believe? Are these Republicans being xenophobic red baiters yet again? According to the New York Times, yes. Here's how they frame it. Sola Amarova, a Cornell law professor whom President Biden picked for a key banking regulator job, is withdrawing from consideration for the post. Bank lobbyists and Republicans ooh, painted her as a communist because she was born in the Soviet Union. So if you are someone, of course, you consider yourself highly educated, deeply engaged, very informed, and you get your news from NPR and the New York Times, you believe that this woman, Ms. Omarova, is not going to get her job because a bunch of Republicans claim she's a commie just because she was born in the Soviet Union. Will it shock you to learn that this is absolutely a lie? First of all, she withdrew her nomination because the list of Democrats who opposed her was growing. It was up to five or half a dozen Senate Democrats who had publicly come out and said, we can't support her. Remember, Republicans are in the minority and they can't filibuster nominees, thanks to Harry Reid, which the Republicans used to their great advantage while Trump was president when they were in the majority. So if the Democrats had 50 plus one votes, they could send Kamala from wherever they could go find Kamala, whatever she's up to, send her to the Senate to break the tie on behalf of this woman being needlessly and wrongfully smeared as a communist just because she was born in the Soviet Union. All she needed was all the Democrats to support her. At least five of them said we can't. So it's not really just Republicans and banking lobbyists, is it? David Harsanyi at National Review put some additional meat on the bones here. He notes that neither outlet, the New York Times nor NPR, provides a single quote to back the assertion that Senate Republicans personally attacked the Cornell professor over being, quote, born in the Soviet Union. Perhaps some of this confusion hinges on the fact that many in the media have tried to create the impression that Omarova is some kind of political refugee who escaped Soviet tyranny to come to the United States. That, too, was untrue. It was happenstance that the exchange student found herself stranded in Wisconsin when the Soviet Union fell. She never defected. She was studying here. The Soviet Union collapses, and she's like, oh, well, I guess I'm here now. Most senators who opposed her condemned Omarova because she had proposed nationalizing the American financial system empowering the Federal Reserve to take over consumer deposits and, quote, effectively ending banking as we know it. It is Omarova who proposed a, quote, national investment authority, which would redistribute your money into a, quote, big and bold climate agenda. This after she recommended that states bankrupt 
private energy companies so we can, quote, basically get rid of those carbon financiers by starving them of their source of capital. Her words. This is the woman who wrote a paper titled The People's Ledger last year. She also praised the USSR, the Soviet Union, for their lack of a gender pay gap. I mean, sure, they were spreading communism around the world, subjugating millions of people, murdering millions of people, but there was no pay gap, according to their absolutely true and honest and open books. She defended that. She made that point. She was also a member of a Marxist Facebook group. As an adult, you might recall that Facebook was not a thing back when the Soviet Union existed. It came into existence basically when I was in college. So she joined a Marxist Facebook group. So these are her positions, her words, her associations, her proposals, her verbatim quotes that might lead someone to believe that she might have some communist sympathies or at least is extremely hardcore left wing and not suited for this role to oversee the U.S. banking industry, which is why even some Democrats could not bring themselves to stomach the nomination and she withdrew. But according to NPR and The New York Times, it's because these awful Republicans were decided to throw around the word communism just because of the country no longer in existence where she was born. And that's why there are a lot of ignorant people who believe this is a total collapse based on Republican bigotry and lying as opposed to, you know, her words and her record, which is how people ought to be judged in these positions. And I'm confident that the editors and the journalists of the New York Times and NPR deeply, deeply feel that we have a misinformation problem in this country. Go look in the mirror, guys. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show, halfway through the program and the week. Appreciate you being here. So we've been talking about the so-called Build Back Better reconciliation spending binge that the Democrats are talking about, not just talking about in the House. They passed it, every single one of them except for one. They voted to give huge tax breaks to millionaires in blue states and to raise taxes on millions of middle class people, really. The largest line item in the Democrat House bill was tax breaks for rich people in blue states. That is a real thing that happened financed in part by tax increases on the middle class. It's you can't make it up. It is real. Nonpartisan economists and analysts have determined that based on the actual bill itself. But there's more. The Democrats say, well, it's going to help people because it's going to make their lives more affordable on things, for example, like child care. So now some experts have looked at the actual provisions as written in the Democratic bill and it would, in fact, drastically reduce the cost of child care for some Americans while absolutely exploding 
the cost of childcare for many other Americans. While totally revamping and uprooting the childcare industry in America. They want to remake it, the Democrats do, in one fell swoop along party lines in a way that would spike the cost for millions and millions of parents across the country when it comes to child care and likely creating a disincentive to work for a lot of people and a shortage, a scarcity of labor, which is already a problem, but particularly and specifically in child care, which would have all sorts of cascading effects throughout the economy and our society. Right? The Democrats just say, oh, let's do this. Let's throw money at it. Let's use taxpayer subsidies to help this group of people. They'll be the winners. Other people will be the losers. And we're just going to do it because we know better. This is a disaster in waiting. And I've seen a few different analyses of this already. And to his credit, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, he has latched onto this issue because he sees – because he sees it as a real political opportunity to draw political blood from the Democrats. Whether you like McConnell or dislike McConnell, and I really like him, he is a tactician extraordinaire, and he's got a good sense of the political environment. And if he decides to focus on something, I think it's worth paying attention. So he devoted a lengthy floor speech yesterday in the Senate to go through what this bill would do to American child care. And one thing that I like about McConnell as well is when he comes to the floor with a speech, he doesn't go off half-cocked. He doesn't show up ill-prepared. He doesn't throw a bunch of rhetorical bombs that may or may not be accurate when you actually dig into them. He vets his public statements very carefully so you can trust them. Not all politicians are that way from either party. There are a lot of politicians where they'll assert something. I'm like, yeah, let's triple check that. McConnell brings receipts. He does his homework, and he's got a very good staff that helps him with this. So with that being said, I know, as I often say when I play McConnell audio, he's not the most riveting speaker. Child care in Build Back Better is not the most exciting red meat talk radio subject. But think about if you have young kids or if your friends have young kids or your family members have young kids. Are they going to be the winners under the Democrat bill or are they going to be the big losers under the Democrat bill? Let's listen to cut 15 McConnell yesterday. The Democrats have written their toddler takeover in ways that would turn families finances literally upside down and make already expensive childcare even costlier. So let's walk through how they did it. First, their reckless taxing and spending spree would make childcare dramatically more expensive through an avalanche of new mandates, regulations, and micromanagement, the usual Washington, D.C. routine. State and local governments are panicking about the childcare inflation this would cause. Here in the district, as one liberal analysis uncovered, Local officials have formally estimated, listen to this, that the per-child daycare cost for a toddler or infant would jump up $12,000 a year. Increase the cost of child care, $12,000 a year. 12000 more per child 
per year. That's a left-leaning analysis from a group in D.C. based on the Democrats' Build Back Better bill. Does this sound better? Cut 16. President Biden's inflation is coming for daycare. That's why the other half of their clumsy scheme is to dump subsidies into some families. They want to borrow and print even more so they can throw money at the thing they have just made more expensive. But here's where the bad idea turns into literally a terrible one. The Democrats wouldn't help families directly. This isn't some simple voucher that families can use as they please. My colleagues have produced an insanely tangled scheme where the truckloads of money go from Washington to state governments to the child care centers, one leaky bucket after another. The problems run deeper than that. Democrats want states to sign up for badly underfunded mandates. That's the effect because the entitlement programs will surely last forever. But for accounting purposes, Democrats are pretending the money stops after a decade. Many states will not be keen to be socialist guinea pigs. So you're going to have these new schemes and regulations all put in place. The feds pay for it for a while with your money. And then with costs, of course, going up because the government's making it all more expensive or subsidizing it, then all of a sudden it's up to states to figure out what to do about the revenue. This is often how these schemes work. Cut 17, McConnell goes on. Then there's the fact that the assistance is doled out in incredibly confusing and uneven ways. The subsidies start and stop with no rhyme or reason. Listen to what a left-leaning organization, the People's Policy Project, has uncovered. They found that in year one, a family that earns $1 over their state median income will be eligible for zero subsidies, meaning they'll be on the hook for the entire unsubsidized price, which they estimate will now cost at least 13000 per year higher than it does right now. The researcher reveals himself because it's so unbelievable. Here's the quote. Having a family income just $1 higher than your state's medium income would result in you being ineligible for child care subsidies in 2022, even as the unsubsidized price of child care skyrockets due to the wage and other mandates in the Democratic proposal. This is obviously a perverse outcome. And it's not clear whether lawmakers even realize what they're about to do. How many of these House Democrats who voted for this have any clue about any of this? Pelosi told them we're voting for it. They all said, yes, ma'am. And they voted for it. So this is a left-leaning analysis, the People's Policy Project. They looked at it and found that if you are even just a dollar above the median income, if you're below, right, then you're going to get a bunch of subsidies, at least for a while, from taxpayers, your fellow Americans, all of us, we're going to give you subsidies to pay for child care. Very generous subsidies. Child care is going to become more expensive because there's going to be requirements about how much you have to pay people in this realm. All sorts of new regulations about people meeting government benchmarks to be government approved child care professionals. Right? This whole blizzard 
of new stuff, money flying around, regulations, requirements for licensing and that sort of thing, all micromanaged by the government, by the federal government. Doesn't that sound fun? And there'll be some winners, but if you are one of the losers in this scheme, basically half of us, right, if you are making just above the average income in your state and you've got kids, well, guess what? Your tax dollars are going out the door to pay for this other stuff, plus tax cuts for millionaires. And you're getting no subsidies, but all the downside of all these other new entanglements involving childcare, where your current arrangement might become illegal or not sufficient for the government. And a lot harder to find someone who's eligible to work for you. And even if you can make that arrangement, it's going to cost you a lot more because the cost of all of this is going up. And the solution from Washington Democrats is, well, we'll give people more free money to deal with those increases because we're making these changes that are good. But many, many millions of Americans will not be eligible for any of that so-called free money. In fact, they'll be providing the free money through their tax bill. So you'll have a huge supply problem when it comes to child care, worse than it currently is, plus an affordability problem that is much worse for a lot of people, even if it gets better for the winners that have been selected by the Democrats. Cut 18, McConnell goes on. This isn't just one technical glitch. It's emblematic of how ill-conceived the whole experiment is. There are 10 problems like this on every single page. I should add, Mr. President, the families who even get to participate in the mess I've just laid out, they're actually the lucky ones because Democrats want a big government to pick winners and losers among different families who make different choices. Many American families make one set of sacrifices so that both parents can work full time. These are the people the Democrats are trying to reward, although their plan fails in practice. But Americans are allowed to have different aspirations. Some families make different sacrifices to have a parent at home full time. Others prefer flexible middle grounds that involve part time work plus in home childcare. He says the Democrats toddler takeover wouldn't give them a dime. No diversity, no flexibility, institutional daycare, nothing. In fact, it's worse than nothing because a family who wants a provider to come to their house part time or wants to participate in a neighborhood share will now be stuck in an inflated market. They'll have to bid against the employers that Democrats have blessed and subsidized. Oh, and then there's this in cut 20. I haven't even touched on one of the most sinister parts of this whole proposal. For parents who do use childcare outside the home, faith-based options are incredibly popular. The Bipartisan Policy Center estimates that 53% of parents who use center-based care use ones that are linked to faith-based organizations. But the same Democrats who are letting far-left propaganda trickle down from the universities into K-12 schools are now declaring war on faith-based child care. Washington Democrats want to unleash the woke mob on church daycare. There are at least two parts of their bill that are direct attacks. First, 
Liberals are trying to chase faith-based providers out of the daycare industry by denying funds to any facility they deem discriminatory. Of course, today's radical left tosses around these kinds of accusations at any remotely traditional institution. He says faith-based child care centers could potentially get their subsidies ripped away if they don't hire who secular bureaucrats want them to hire to set up their facilities the way secular bureaucrats want them to set them up. So there's also a direct attack on faith-based child care options in this bill because they want to control everything top-down, micromanage it badly, pick winners and losers, and the losers are going to be hurting badly. And chances are, good chances are, you're one of the losers if you're a family with small children. And the Democrats say, don't worry, we're here to help. We're from the government. We're here to help. It is going to explode some of the problems in childcare in this country. And that's just one element of build back better, so-called. That every single House Democrat, except for one up in Maine, voted for. I'd love to see them all quizzed about these elements of the bill that they supported, that they want to become law. Do they have any clue what's in there? I hope Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema help Republicans kill this bill. It is a disaster on virtually every front. The Guy Benson Show continues with more right after this break. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you along every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. This is a story that I've been holding for a couple days, meaning to get to it, and I think it is squarely within the lane of a Woke Tales update. Woke Tales. Politico headline, Democrats fall flat with Latinx language. One pollster who talked to Hispanic voters, they prefer to be called Hispanic, by the way, or Latinos. Almost none of them use Latinx. In fact, only 2% of American Hispanics polled say they use Latinx or Latinx, as one of my conservative Hispanic friends refers to the moniker. It's just this woke, progressive term invented to try to make language ungendered because Spanish is a gendered language. And that's offensive, of course, for all the stupid reasons that wokesters attack biological fact on a regular basis. So they had to come up with a new term, Latinx. And in the poll, only 2% of Hispanics in America use it, but as many as 40% of Hispanics are offended by it. So I actually hope that the Democrats and their ivory tower allies and their buddies in the media and in these social justice groups, I hope they keep using Latinx because it's turning people off. And in fact, there's a new Wall Street Journal poll out yesterday. Fascinating poll. Terrible news for Biden. He's underwater by 16 points on overall approval. 41 percent approve. 57 percent disapprove among independents. He's at 30% approval, 66% disapproval. Republicans have a three-point lead on the generic ballot heading into 2022 in the Wall Street Journal poll. Republicans are ahead by 11 points on the economy. And here's one nugget from the Wall Street Journal poll. Quote, 
asked which party they, Hispanics, would back if the election were held today. 37% said they would support the Republican congressional candidate, and 37% said they would favor the Democrat. Exactly a tie. They also did a hypothetical matchup, a rematch, 2024, Biden versus Trump. Biden, despite being very unpopular, still leads Trump by a point overall. But a virtual tie. Imagine what a popular Republican might do in that matchup. That's how unpopular Biden is right now. And among Hispanics, head to head, 44 percent said they would back Biden, 43 for Trump. There is a real shift among American Hispanics underway right now in our politics. Keep calling them Latinx guys. It's working great. I wonder if this trend continues. At some point, will it be the Democrats who start chanting, build that wall for political reasons? Their grip on Hispanics is loosening, and they insist on alienating them with stupid woke terms. Congrats. You're doing great. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming right up. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour time on this Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Our website here, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free, on demand, every day. Also, check us out on social media, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Give us a follow. You can also follow me individually, my personal account, Guy P. Benson, which is also the same on Twitter and Instagram. So a couple options for you there. As we begin our final hour, I remind you, that this happy hour is sponsored, as always, by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink. Just a delicious product. Big hit at the Christmas party. As expected, we sold out, as they say. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they are sold in your area. You can order online as an option as well. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. And the Long Drink is available widely in New York, but also in Florida which is probably good news for my next guest, Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post and for FoxNews.com. Carol, welcome back to the show. Great to have you. Happy holidays. Hi, Guy. Happy holidays. Nice to talk to you. Absolutely. So I wanted to bring you on the show today because, well, it's finally happened. (laughs) Something that you have been flirting Mm -hmm. with, threatening almost for a while. (laughs) Is actually coming to pass. And in some ways, I think it's actually very sad because you are leaving New York with your family. You are Mm -hmm. uh, packing up and moving. And there was clearly a final straw, but this was a slow build. And as many people have commented on social media, people who have known you for years, people who are closer friends with you than I am, said that they didn't really deep down ever believe this day would come because of how much. You love New York City. So let's just start with this. Tell us about your journey from childhood 
to New York. Let's start there because right. I think the whole arc of this story is actually mm-hmm. fascinating and speaks to some broader trends that the audience is going to want to hear. Yeah. So I was uh, born in the Soviet Union and I moved to Brooklyn when I was a little under two years old. Uh, my husband has a very similar story. He's from Israel. He moved to Queens when he was five. So we have very parallel immigrant stories. We grew up in the boroughs of New York City and we never wanted to leave. Um, I've lived in some other places, you know, temporarily. Uh, I, I've lived in D.C. for a little while, I lived in uh, outside Atlanta, a little, little, spent a little time in Colorado, um, in Scotland. But I always, New York City was what I always knew I'd come back to. And I used to have like this joke where, you know, I'd say like, I'm not worried about my kids growing up and moving away because I live in the greatest city in the world. Why would they want to go anywhere else? And I really believed it. I was such, I, you know, I jokingly refer, refer to myself as a New York supremacist. I, there's no better city. I still believe that. It's just been carefully destroyed by bad forces and I can't stay here and raise my kids here. And that's really what the bottom line is. I think if it were just my husband and me, we might put up with it for maybe a little while longer, but I have to get my kids out and I have to get them out now. Okay. So let's talk about why you fell in love with New Mm -hmm. York because you were brought there, obviously born abroad, as you said, in the former Soviet union, you come to New Mm -hmm. York. That is sort of where you are, are raised. It's sort of home yeah. for you. But as an adult, you also had a deep love and affinity for New York, New York City, right. people jokingly referring to you as like like the chief of the tourism department of the <laughs> tourism bureau of New York City, always, always pushing people to come visit, really yeah. very uh, loyal in particular to your neighborhood and poking fun at Definitely. people who live in other neighborhoods. What mm-hmm. was it? And maybe to some extent still, what is yeah. it? But what was it in particular so, that makes you love the city so much? Yeah. So look, everybody loves their home, right? I, and that's not unique to me. Um, but the thing, I, I, I really do think New York is the greatest city in the history of the world. I think what we have here is really special. And I think a lot of forces unite to make this place so great. Um, I grew up in really immigrant parts of Brooklyn where there was you know, so many languages spoken, so many different kinds of food. Um, my kids grow up with like such a, a wide variety of everything. I mean, you know, again, food, but also uh, languages and culture. And there's just so much going on all the time. Um, we also just have you know, the best of art, the best of um, just so many different things. And I I really always was so proud of this place. I I thought, you know, nothing could be better. And I I took for granted that it couldn't be destroyed. I even, you know, I have so many people now in my mentions being like, well, what took you so long? And, you know, whatever. But it's, it's, easy for people to forget that most of my adult life was spent here with Rudy Giuliani as mayor and then Michael Bloomberg as mayor. Between them, they had five terms. And then even when uh, Bill de Blasio became mayor, it took a really long time for things to start getting bad. Things were so good that they elected this doofus um, because they didn't worry about it. It was all going to be fine. New York was coasting. We were doing fantastic. Our crime was uh, New York, New York. Yeah. Yeah, New York, New York, Manhattan, you know, Manhattan was booming, Brooklyn was booming, Queens was booming. All of these areas were doing so great, and we didn't think it'd be possible for one man to cause as much damage as he has. And even Governor Cuomo was sort of the moderate um, until COVID. So what happened is that with COVID, so much was exposed and so much could not recover um, because of our very poor leadership. Suddenly, who was in charge mattered a lot. And once it mattered a lot, uh, it became really hard to not see that. When did your first inkling start 
to burn those embers about maybe this isn't the place for my family anymore. And you push those aside. You shunted them aside. You sort of quieted those voices in your head for a while. But they clearly began a while back. Were there a few catalyst events that began this shift? (laughs) Yes, I, I can point to the moment where I thought, oh, my God we might have to move. And it was May 2020. And Governor Andrew Cuomo, then governor, announced his reopening plan. And it was like phase one and, you know, construction and you no know, whatever. And then phase two was retail and some other things and you know, restaurants or um, and then it was like phase three was a whole bunch of other stuff. And then in phase four was like Broadway and schools and concerts and so many things that I thought we needed to bring back immediately, but schools was really the fact that they put schools in that last reopening category and it was May and I knew how slowly things moved. And I, I, I was like, I don't think schools are opening in September. And everybody's like, that's crazy. Why wouldn't schools wait, wait. open in September? That's months away, <laughs> you know? And then this was September, 2020 so. that you're talking about. Of course, yeah, yeah they, didn't, they didn't reopen in a lot no, of places. Right. I just want to ask you this real but that quick. That was a crazy we... thing to say. Yeah. That was, that, you know, May, 2020, that was a crazy thing for me to say. People did not believe that in May 2020. And of course you were right. I seem mm-hmm. to remember, and we had you on this show, Carol, and I can't remember when it was. When was it that someone was posting things on your door or around your neighborhood yeah. attacking you over mm-hmm. politics? When did that happen? That was also summer 2020. That was summer 2020. Um, I had tweeted something that somebody didn't like and completely misunderstood, of course. Um, and they posted a sign on my door, but also like all over my block um, saying that I, I, whatever, without getting into the details of it, but just that they had completely misrepresented what I said and purposefully, obviously, because you can't be that dense. Um, and it, you know, I took it as a threat. Absolutely. Um, but it was just, it was another sign of like decline. <laughs> so, Yeah. So that that weighed on you. That was part of this decision, you think? Um, I'm not I'm not afraid of people like that. I got you know since then I put security in. I have a uh, multiple cameras. I have a security system. But yeah, it's not pleasant, right? When you you have crazy people who know where you live and let you know that, which is what I thought it was. I just took it as somebody being like, I know where you live. Look. Um, yeah, and, and look at this look, bad person, you know, right? This bad right, person who lives among right. us. Shame on her. Shame on yeah. anyone who associates with her. So then, you know, right. a few months pass. September 2020 mm-hmm. arrives. Schools do not reopen. You are proven correct right. about that. And yep. in fact, it took another year for schools to reopen in a lot of parts of the country, including parts of New York, right. with sort yep. of cheering from the establishment, the Democratic Party. They were kind of in lockstep with a lot of these mitigation, if you want to call it that, tactics and restrictions and lockdowns. And then Mm -hmm. when we started to come out of it with vaccines and all these other things, maybe it felt like the worst was behind us. And yet it's now heading into early 2022 that you finally decided to pull the plug. You've had enough. What was it that finally ended this debate in your mind and decided that you needed to go racing for the exits? So one of the things is that when when our schools were closed, they were open in a lot of other places in the country and they were doing fine. Um, And so I I thought that we could learn the lesson of like, hey, let's look at other places. And people be like, oh, you know, New York City is different. Well, schools in London were open. Schools in Paris were open. I mean, New York City is not that different. Um, Schools in Miami clearly were open, um, et cetera. So 
this year, it, masking continues in New York City schools, and the masking is so intense. And I, they continue to mask outdoors, and, and nobody's masking outdoors. There's no group of people other than school children who are masking outdoors. And our new governor, Kathy Hochul, has moved it back to being two-year-olds and up masking. So you'll be walking around, and you'll see a group of two-year-olds in a daycare, you know, holding on to like a little rope with these little masks over their faces. And it absolutely, I absolutely feel that in a year we're going to be reading articles about how badly this damaged development. We're already seeing studies on it. There was one out of Brown University about how cognitive development is slowing down because of these masks. And I, I see it in my kids. And that's really what it is, is that I... I keep I kept waiting for New Yorkers to snap out of it and they didn't and I have to get was my there kids out one of a situation like this. particular straw that broke the camel's back or was it just a recognition well, that this is going to yeah. be still a long slog? <laughs> uh, it's it's the long slog. Like if I had some hope of of something changing soon, we might not go. But really, I I keep saying my my youngest son turned six in November. He can't read, um, and while. I, you know, look, a six-year-old not reading, really not the end of the world. He will read before he gets to college, I think. Um, but I, I see this happening on a massive scale, and I just, I feel like I have to save him. I feel like it's not just him. It's not just this one six-year-old. It's six-year-olds all over the country. There's another study that showed that six-year-olds specifically, first graders specifically, their reading skills are so drastically behind that some of them literally might not catch up. So my joke about, yeah, he'll read before college, you know, I get to make that joke because we already got him a tutor and we work with him all the time. And I just worry about all the kids who don't get that, who won't have parents who focus all of their energy on it. Um, But I have to do what's best for my kids. And there's so many people. Continue. uh, Yeah. I continue to do. And there's just a bunch of officials, Carol. Yeah. There are like a bunch of officials and politicians out there who seem to be fine with this. Sort of like, well, this is just the science, even though it's not. And this is about fairness and safety and equity. And in fact, there are kids (laughs) really getting harmed and you've had enough of it. Let me ask you two last questions about Mm -hmm. this. One is something that popped into my mind as soon as I saw the tweet starting that you were leaving New York. Is there any hesitation or maybe a second thought about this, given the fact that a seemingly non-insane mayor is about to become inaugurated? I mean, if it were four more years of de Blasio, I mean, then obviously you do what you have to do. But Eric Adams on public safety, even on COVID, Mm -hmm. he seems a lot more sensible. Does that play into this at all? Yeah. So I I have some hope for Eric Adams, and and I'm rooting my little heart off for New York. I really am. I hope New York does well. I just don't feel like I need to be here uh, to be a part of that anymore. And so the thing with Eric Adams is, he really so last week um, or this week actually, Bill De Blasio um, has this new mandate out where private businesses will will have to force vaccinations on their employees, and kids as young as five must be vaccinated to go inside restaurants, to go inside museums, etc. It's wild. Um, I have not vaccinated my kids yet. Um, I'm very pro-vax, but I think it's ridiculous to vaccinate children because they simply don't need it. And if you know, if I saw evidence to the contrary, I would vaccinate them, but I, I'm not doing it until I see that. So we have a situation where, once again, kids are just being kind of taken along for the ride where they they really are not being thought of at all. Um, and actually, when, when he first mandated that people needed to be vaccinated to get into indoor spaces like restaurants and museums, et cetera, he completely forgot about to mention kids. He, he had to, like, rewrite the, the rule uh, in order to be like, oh, yeah, but kids who don't, didn't have the vaccine at the time are exempt from this. So, um, and I haven't heard a word from Eric Adams saying that he's going to change any of this. So I, I really, um, I am, 
I think Eric Adams will be an improvement because it's hard not to be. But mm. I don't have some great overarching hope that sanity will return. I think the worst part about all of this is I think New Yorkers want these rules. I think they want the mandates. I think they want the masking. And I can't live with that anymore. Well, some of them do. Some of them don't. And some of them who hate it as much as you do are leaving. A lot have left already. Yeah. Last question, mm-hmm. Carol. Where are you going? Uh, free state of Florida. <laughs> I, we, we lived there last year for a few months, and it was a magical 2019 wonderland. And it's absolutely owed to their fantastic governor who draws the line and puts kids first. And I have really loved to see it. So I, it's going to be the free state of Florida for the Markowitzes. Come visit. Well, I will. And New York's loss is Florida's gain. And sorry, Bill de Blasio. And I guess congratulations, Ron DeSantis. I mean, that's sort of what's happened here. And she talked about it a lot. People didn't think it would ever actually come to pass, but it has. The Markowitzes are headed down to Florida. They can't take it in New York anymore. Carol, it's sort of a a sad story, but also a telling one. I wanted people to hear it here. Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post. Maybe you'll have to get a job at like the Sun Sentinel or something down there. Also for foxnews.com. All right. That's good news. Thank you, Carol. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Guy. Thank you. And the happy hour continues on The Guy Benson Show straight ahead. The Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. As we are back here on The Guy Benson Show in the happy hour, some happy news, at least some encouraging news on COVID, one of the major subjects that Carol Markowitz was mentioning in our last segment when she was talking about her decision, her family's decision to leave New York City and move to Florida. Let's talk about Omicron, the new variant. We have been following it, of course, very closely. There's been a lot of consternation about it for some good reasons, but a lot of overhyped reasons. I did see some data yesterday that it looks like the vaccines may not have as good protection against the variant as they have against other variants. But there is definitely some protection. Pfizer coming out, I believe it was today, saying that two shots offers some protection. Three shots with the booster offers a lot of protection. And the data that I saw also suggesting that so-called hybrid immunity, shots plus a recovery from COVID, which is what I have, is very effective against Omicron. So that's just one piece of the puzzle on vaccines. The most important question, at least in my mind, has been from the beginning virulence. How virulent is this new variant? And if the answer is not very, that's really good news. And we can all take a big step back and breathe a big sigh of relief. And again, as we continue to follow this so far, so good, a report out of Europe showing that as of yesterday, an epidemiological update here, quote, all Omicron cases for which there is any available information on severity were either asymptomatic or mild. There have been no deaths, end quote. And the belief is that the immune system is fighting Omicron, perhaps even more than COVID antibodies. So our bodies are fighting this thing off. And based on all of the available data on all of the available cases, it's all pointing to mild illness or even asymptomatic illness, zero deaths 
in anyone with Omicron, which has now been circulating in some places for weeks, maybe more than a month. So that is extremely heartening news. Let's hope we continue to see this trend. The Guy Benson Show continues with more right after this. listening to a new generation of talk guy benson oh hi there it's the happy hour on the guy benson show on this wednesday earlier in the program we spoke with mara liason she and i were on special report together last night on the panel we caught up earlier on this show she of course is national correspondent on the politics side for npr and a fox news contributor we got into the news of the day here's part of that conversation with mara liason So I wanted to start with a question that you asked just the other day at the White House press briefing, and it made a little bit of news because the press secretary, Jen Psaki, responded in a way that kind of uh, turned a lot of people off, including many scientists and doctors. You asked a question about testing, right, getting COVID tests into the hands of Americans. And Psaki was, I would say, maybe a, a bit snippy and dismissive in her response. I'm not sure if that's how you would characterize it. But explain the question that you asked, and oh. were you at all surprised by the way it was answered? Well, I was a little surprised, but you know what? Press secretaries have a hard job. I think she's generally one of the best of them. And, yeah, it was a, it was a little strange, but what I asked was pretty simple, which is why not make more tests available for less money. Other countries have been able to do this. The UK, I think, gives them out for free. You can just walk into a pharmacy and scoop up a bunch of tests and do it at home. Germany, I think they cost a buck a piece, the equivalent. Um, So other countries have been able to test more. And one of President Biden's planks in his new winter plan to fight COVID is much more testing. So I was just asking her, why not make them more widely available and cheaper? And she said, well, should we should we send one to every person, every household? And I said, well, maybe I'm I don't know, but I'm just wondering why you haven't been able to do that. So she um, was a little defensive, but of, but yet, but the day the next day, she had a very long and detailed explanation of all the things that the White House is doing to make tests more available. You know, one of the things that the president said is, well, you can uh, you can buy a test and then apply for reimbursement from your insurance company. That seems kind of complicated to me. Um, yep. So yeah. She was, yeah, a little defensive, but but on the whole, I think it's it's still a mystery why the United States of America hasn't been able to do more cheaper testing than other developed countries. Yeah, because other countries have done it, and that was the point that I think a lot of people who were defending you, a lot of doctors yeah. and others came out and said, like, what the hell is that response to a completely reasonable yeah. question? Because I know you can walk over to the CVS in my neighborhood – and if they're not out, you can buy some of the rapid tests, but they are not cheap at all. And if you're someone, you know, dealing with already inflation and putting food on the table and all that, is that something you're going to necessarily shell out for? Whereas it's it's readily available, these types of tests, for very low amounts of money, if not free, elsewhere. If the government's going to spend money on anything, this would be the type of thing sort of a la – Operation Warp Speed that I think most Americans could very much get behind and having a lot of readily available testing seems to me it would be like one of the obvious things you would try to do if, for example, you campaigned on crushing the virus and getting back to normal, which is exactly what Biden campaigned on and frankly won on. 
Right. Well, you know, the interesting thing also is testing is the exception that proves the rule about the politics of COVID. It's not a divisive issue. Nobody is against testing, at least that I've heard about. So it's something that I think you're right. People would welcome. There's no uh, ideological, um, you know, opposition to testing. And supposedly testing is one of the keys to getting the virus under control. Meanwhile, Mara, I want to read for you some quotes. This was uh, late yesterday. This started to break. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. This was on the heels of Senator Kirsten Cinema out in Arizona giving an interview saying, look, inflation is real. It is hurting my constituents. Manchin, speaking at a Wall Street Journal event, said, quote, the unknown of inflation is, quote, much greater than the need to do build back better right now. My full interview with Mara Liason and today's entire show available for free, as always, on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcast, it's available on demand, no charge to you, the entire thing. We recommend it if you miss any of the program. When we come back, the home stretch, there's an online feature called Am I the A-Hole? where people confess things and then let the Internet decide and judge whether they are at fault. There was a ruined Thanksgiving and a woman asked America, asked the Internet, am I the a-hole? We'll debate it when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. So sometimes you'll see these posts online and they get shared on social media where people ask, A-I-T-A, meaning am I the a-hole? I'm going to just censor myself because we're on the radio. And people paint a scenario that has at least ostensibly happened in their lives. And then the Internet judges who's the villain, who's the good guy, antagonist, protagonist, all that stuff. And I suspect a lot of these are embellished or made up. This one, I have no idea whether it's true or not, but I thought it was interesting. I sort of got a kick out of it, and it's at least plausible. So a young woman, age 30, asks, am I the a-hole for ruining Thanksgiving? And you all know how much I love Thanksgiving, so I was like, well, what did she do to Thanksgiving? So I had to read on. Here's the scenario. I'm just quoting from her post. She's a 30-year-old female. I met my boyfriend, 30-year-old male, three years ago. Before we were together, he was with his high school sweetheart. They fell out of love and they broke up. A year later, we started dating. His mom, however, was still heartbroken about it. I was very understanding and thought she needed some time to get to know me. The ex, the other girl, basically grew up with them and they saw her as part of their family. For the first year of my relationship, his mom would call me his ex's name until the boyfriend once got angry and told her to be nicer. She laughed it off and said it was just a habit. All right, so you've got the mom here of the dude calling the new girlfriend by the old girlfriend's name. And oops, it was just a mistake, just a habit, claimed the mom. Then after that, she started calling me the wrong name, Janet, instead of Jenny. She says these are fictional names just for the story. So the girl's name for the purposes of this is Jenny, but the mother of the boyfriend started calling her Janet. So the correct first letter, but getting the name wrong consistently. I corrected her a couple of times, but she seemed to enjoy hurting me, so I ignored it later. My boyfriend has two sisters. 
A couple of weeks before Thanksgiving, we were invited to a barbecue at the older sister's house. I was in the kitchen with my boyfriend's mom and the sisters and one of their husbands. The older sister then talked about how my boyfriend praised my cooking to her husband. And the mom, boyfriend's mom, was listening. Then she said out loud, sure, why don't we let Janet make the turkey this year for Thanksgiving? The sisters giggled and looked at each other and said, that's a great idea. I never told my boyfriend what happened. So I guess the mother's sitting there hearing her daughters talk about how this girlfriend is a good cook. And this mother obviously doesn't like the girlfriend. So she suggests that, well, maybe she ought to cook our Thanksgiving turkey, calling her, of course, by the wrong name, Janet. And Janet, whose real name for the purposes of this is Jenny, agrees, but doesn't tell her boyfriend. Here's the conclusion of the story. On Thanksgiving, we went over to his mom's house with the usual wine and dessert. She was shocked. Everybody was shocked. Where's the turkey? The girlfriend, Jenny, says, what? I thought Janet was bringing the turkey. There was yelling and crying, and we got kicked out. My boyfriend is so angry, he hasn't talked to me since. I think it's over, meaning the relationship, to be honest. But I still don't think I did anything wrong. Did I? Now, I don't know if this is true. Part of me wonders if that conclusion was a little on the nose. But given all the passive aggression from this mother to the girlfriend, for the girlfriend to turn it on its head and agree for the person with the wrong name that the mother insists calling her, that person is going to bring the turkey. She shows up basically empty-handed and calls out the mother for what is obviously a purposeful series of insults, calling her by the wrong name, saying, oh, I'm sorry, I thought someone called Janet was bringing the turkey. The whole dinner blows up. The boyfriend's mad. Again, I'm a little skeptical about this. But if it's real or close to real, as a strong Thanksgiving defender, I think I'm siding with the girlfriend because the mom is absolutely at fault here. I think it might have been a little bit much not telling the boyfriend and deliberately sabotaging everything. But that was also the point. The point was to make a very clear point. To this woman and the rest of the family, you can only insult me for so long, and I'm going to have my revenge, and good luck with your Thanksgiving this year. I give this like maybe a 50% chance of being real. But again, I'm voting overall with the girlfriend. I don't know if I would have the stones to do what she did. I also don't know if I would have continued to tolerate a situation in which I was treated that way from a significant other's family. I might have found other ways to politely diffuse the situation or to push back sort of in increasing ways without letting it all simmer and then explode in a nuclear blast at a major family holiday, right? I'm not sure that was the most constructive or mature way for this to be dealt with. But again, if it's like who's at fault or who's the a-hole, the mother's the a-hole and not having a Thanksgiving turkey is her fault. Christine, are you siding with the girlfriend here or the mom or or splitting the difference? Well, I'm definitely not siding with the mom. But um, as a reasonable woman and someone, guy who doesn't let the day-to-day minutia just get her down, uh-huh. I think that if I was in this woman's shoes and I really enjoyed being a part of a relationship with this guy, I would have told him what was going on. And I would have said, hey, listen. I don't want to get hysterical here. I'm not going to scream. I'm not going to shout. 
not going to do anything, you know, vindictive. But here's the problem. And this is what yes. we're going yeah, to Yeah, you got to nip this at the bud at another point or at least address it a different way earlier. I'm not saying that this would be like a complete bill of health for the decisions made by the girlfriend. In fact, here's a thought. If this is what you want to do to make this impact, to really show how obnoxious the mother is being, why not cook the turkey, cook a great kick-ass turkey, by the way, because apparently she's a good cook, have it in foil, ready to go in the car, show up, make your point, say, oh, we don't have a turkey. That was supposed to be Janet cooking the turkey. Have the mom melt down and then say, just kidding, we have the turkey. I cooked it because I know who you're referring to. But for the last time, my name is not Janet. My name is Jenny. I hope you understand the point. You could have made exactly the same point with the same impact and then showed up with one extra step, which is having done the job anyway and having done it well while still sort of rattling the cage in a major way. That would have been better than just like, oh, here's our wine and our dessert. Oh, what, were you expecting a turkey? Too bad, so sad, your fault. Maybe that's how I would have played it or I would have counseled her to play it. Do you think this is real? I don't know. I, I'm leaning toward it's not real because I don't know. First of all, I just don't know who in their right mind as, a, as this whole family would have let Jenny be responsible for the turkey. Like the new girlfriend is going to be responsible for the turkey. Like that's where the red flag yeah. for me came up. I honestly, I've had, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I don't think my mother-in-law ever did this, but I did have a boyfriend who I was dating for a few years and their family kept calling me the ex-girlfriend, like by name. And it was not fun. Wait, they would call you by the name of a previous girlfriend for years? Yeah, I can't even say it because this is so many years ago. They just kept calling me Amanda, Amanda. I'm like, oh my gosh, my name is not Amanda. And then it took me a while. They were doing it on purpose, weren't they? No, I don't think so. I don't like were I would they, be were at, they blithering morons? I don't I would be at like an event and like the you know, sitting at a table, say, you know, like a party and the aunt, one of the aunts would be like, hey, Amanda. And I'm like, oh, my God. And then I had to do some serious deep diving to realize that that was the ex-girlfriend's name. And that did not go over very well with cooking. No, I mean, I just it's so rude. If the aunt is calling you Amanda, why don't you just like refer to her as like Uncle Jeff? What is it, Uncle Jeff? <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Is that not your gender or your name? Let's uh, work to do the bare minimum here, which is getting my name right. After how many years in a relationship? I cannot imagine that was an accident unless they were like some of the slowest people you've ever met. I think this was passive aggressive. Mean. I think this happens a lot more than you think. Really? Yes, I really do. I think this happens a lot. This this just hit home when I was reading this earlier. I was like, oh, like I totally understand how she feels. But Can you just be like, you know what? I know names are hard. Just call me Cookie. <laughs> was that your nickname yet? Were you a Cookie No, yet, I wasn't Cookie back now. I'm, this was in my 20s. This was when I, a young, a young Cookie. But no, I was not Cookie then. So it was. And, and, that was and, a long time ago. I knew you're, okay, I'm done. I'm done talking. Actually, to you. you're you're not you're not quite done here, Amanda, because you did mention that on the call earlier, your house. This is totally changing subjects now, but because you had floated this on a previous home stretch, there's an update involving your home on Eyesore Lane. Is that correct? Yes the uh, the residents of Eyesore Lane are going to sorely miss me soon. Did that make sense at all? Kind of. I, I get what you're doing there. Thank you. 
Now that's because I'm gonna move. So- well, hopefully we're gonna be moving soon. We officially put our house up on the market. We feel like we 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 put a, a good price on this home. Price to sell. Uh, my real estate agent feels very confident. Wait, price to sell? I thought the whole point of this whole scheme was to get a huge windfall well, from so, this. Sale. Okay, so what we did. Okay, so here's the thing. What we did was we put it at like a a good price that's gonna get people in. To this um, open house bidding this weekend, war. and then we're going to have a bidding war. Well, you hope, right? That's not necessarily how it works. I mean, do we need to send Wyatt there in a disguise just to make it seem like there's some competition, right? So, like, he just walks around with his Wall Street Journal being like, oh, I might make an offer today, just whispering <laughs> it to to random people. I mean— That could help. It's 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 not a bad idea, actually, to just to even I, see how, how the open house is going. Can I make a prediction? I think if and when this house sells and you guys move out, that moving truck is going to drive away with the whole neighborhood gathered, waving goodbye, everyone dabbing their eyes with tears. And as soon as it turns the corner out of sight, block party. It's going to be like Martina McBride blasting, let freedom ring. That's going to be eyesore lane. There'll be a new name for the street. They can rename the street. All of your inflatables are gone. Well, it's it. That is the part I'm going to offer whoever does buy the home because I I was walking up from the bus last night and there's my house and don't forget I was one that started the inflatable craze last year and then there's a house next to me the house next to me now the fourth house has an inflatable so I'm going to gift because my mother apparently I don't know why she did not want the Santa inflatable I'm going to gift it to the new homeowner. So they can keep Mm. the tradition alive. Yeah. I don't know about that, but good luck. I know that open houses can be exciting and nerve wracking. I assume you'll be gone, right? You take off. Yes. They they asked us to to leave. She asked me to leave. And then she said, please take Rosie with us. Yes. Well, I'm sure it's not the first time you've been asked to leave somewhere. So, I mean, this is, this is something that you're used to and it should be fine. We are uh, crossing our fingers that it all goes well. I know you're off on Friday. I'm actually also off on Friday, but you have to get ready for the big open house. So that is uh, major goings on in the cookie household. It is on the market. New Jersey buyers beware. You've got an opportunity here. All right. Back tomorrow on the Guy Benson show. Another big one ahead. In the meantime, have a great night. See you same time, same place tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.